Hey everybody, we are back, and that is the Royal Week, because it is just me, your host of Issue by Issue podcast, uh, Nick Byers. Uh, And uh, like I said, we're back. We took a little break there, because I got overwhelmed by the massive number of comics that we have to go through in the history of DC. So I got a little bit scared. Uh, I I got a little bit bummed as well, because I wasn't going to get to the issues and like the topics and and the runs that I was most excited to cover uh, because we're going to be in the golden era and the silver era forever. Uh, but I, I figured out uh, a new plan, a new plan going forward. Uh, there's going to be two podcasts, each a little bit shorter than, the, than previous episodes. Previous episodes clocked in at around two hours. Hopefully these ones are a little bit shorter, but... They're going to be covering one, covering the Golden Age, and the second one will be covering uh, post-Crisis on Infinite Earths number one. Uh, And I'll explain that one in the first episode of of that one, which should be coming out later this week. But that one's going to be starting from Crisis on Infinite Earths number one and moving forward uh, in publishing timeline uh, from there, just like we do on this show. Uh, so that'll be that one. And this one is going to be just the, the same, the OG podcast that you've known for eight long episodes. <laughs> like that was so long. It was like two months. But we are back into it. Uh, I'm excited. I think this new format is is going to scratch the itch that I wanted to scratch, but also cover some of the lesser covered comics of the Golden Age uh, that I know you all come here for in the first place. So... Uh, Enough of that preamble, let's get into today's episode. Today's episode of uh, Issue by Issue OG is going to be covering Detective Comics number 38, Adventure Comics number 49, and Flash Comics number 5. Now let's set the scene as we always do uh, at the beginning of every episode. Uh, The real world history uh, covered by these issues is March 5th. 1940 to March 14th, 1940. Uh, On March 2nd of 1940, the character of Elmer Fudd, the uh, lisping, uh, speech impediment-having hunter uh, of of Looney Tunes, first appeared in the Warner Brothers animated short, Elmer's Candid Camera. Uh, I prefer Bugs Bunny myself, his mortal enemy, but Elmer's always a good time, too. March 6th, 1940, Simo Haiha, uh, otherwise known as the White Death, a Finnish uh, sniper who is believed to have killed 500 people uh, throughout his tenure, was finally hit by an explosive round in an anti-sniper campaign run by the Soviets, putting him into an 11-day coma. This likely is one of the main causes of something that happens a a few days later, uh, which we will get to. March 9th, Raul Julia, actor... Uh, was born in San Juan, Puerto Rico. Uh, he's known to me personally for playing Gomez Adams in the uh, newer uh, Adams Family movies. He also plays General M. Bison in the 1994 Street Fighter movie. So um, he is now he is now deceased, R.I.P. But uh, he was born March 9th, 1940. March 12th, 1940, the Moscow Peace Treaty ending the Winter War with uh, Finland. Uh, was signed. Russia received 16,000 square miles of Finnish territory, uh, so that's not great, but it allowed them to focus solely on World War II, uh, which is good for a while. 
Uh, March 14th, the comedy film Road to Singapore, starring Bing Crosby, Bob Hope, and Dorothy L'Amour, was released. It was the first in the series of popular Road to movies where Bing Crosby and Bob Hope would go to different locales. It's it's parodied many times on Family Guy by uh, Stewie and Brian, uh, kind of along those same lines. They go to a place, they sing some songs, stuff like that. But... Let's get into today's issues. Uh, the first issue up is Detective Comics number 38, released March 6th, 1940, with a cover date of April 1940. And we have uh, a few debuts in this one. Uh, debuting in the Batman story is Robin, Dick Grayson, the very first Robin. Uh, a very important aspect of Batman's mythology and, and, and lore. Uh, we have Haley's Circus which is where the young Dick Grayson was a trapeze artist along with his parents. And we have uh, boss Tony Zuko, who is the uh, murderer or the person who put into uh, motion the murder of Dick Grayson's parents. Dick Grayson, a lot like Batman, uh, Bruce Wayne, his origin has been basically the same since the beginning. And I think that's really cool because a lot of of superheroes, uh, they get retconned. Superman not so much, although a lot of his information was added later. But uh, a lot of superheroes, they don't get the same same beginning. But Dick Grayson is one of the few uh, who's had it since the beginning. So that's pretty cool. Uh, the authors of the Batman story that we'll be reading are uh, Bill Finger and Bob Kane. And it was drawn by uh, Jerry Robinson. Uh, so let's get started. The, uh, the first page is pretty big it's it's kind of like an advertisement about like what's going to be in this issue so the batman presents all on a red background uh, the sensational character find of 1940 robin the boy wonder uh and we have robin in his traditional suit with the the pixie boots and the very very short shorts jumping through a paper circle kind of like uh like they would do it like a football game or something like that and with batman holding it and they're smiling they're having a great time uh, and it says in the little blurb that it normally has in a Batman story, but this one's a little bit different. It says, The Batman, that amazing weird figure of the night, at last takes under his protecting mantle in his relenting, relentless fight against crime, introducing in this issue an exciting new figure whose incredible gymnastics and athletic feats will astound you, a laughing, fighting, young daredevil who scoffs at danger like the legendary Robin Hood whose name and spirit he has adopted, Robin the Boy Wonder. And then it goes into Robin's origin. It starts off with him being Dick Grayson, a a young trapeze artist, along with his parents in Haley's Circus. And, And he overhears one night after the circus that, uh, Haley, the owner of the circus, that's all we get, is Mr. Haley is for the name. He's being shake, uh, shaken down by some gangsters, uh, and they want him to pay protection money, but he says no. And they say, well, you know, I hope nothing bad happens without our protection. Wink, wink, nod, nod. Uh, we then cut to the next night, and who should be in the audience but Bruce Wayne, comma, the Batman. No one knows that, of course, but we know that as the audience. And he is watching the uh, the Flying Graysons perform. Dick is on the ground. He has completed his portion of the show. And suddenly the ropes snap. And uh, John and Mary Grayson fall 
to their deaths because they're they are professionals and they they operate without a safety net, which is silly. But uh, it's the 1940s, so a lot of silliness happened. Dick is, of course, incredibly distraught, uh, and he is consoled a bit by Mr. Haley, the owner of the circus. And later, we see those same gangsters come back and shake down Mr. Haley again, but this time he says that he will pay them. Uh, Dick overhears again, because he's always, he's always listening at door handles uh, and keyholes, just always trying to get that hot goss. And he overhears the fact that they sabotaged um, sabotaged the ropes and killed his parents. And he says he's going to go to the police, but someone behind him says, no, son, not yet. And who could it be but Batman? Uh, he explains that he is the Batman, uh, and he knows that the, the ropes were sabotaged by acid, burning through the ropes and, and ruining their structural integrity. He explains to Dick that if he goes to the police, he will for sure be killed as well because the entire town is run by Boss Zuko, Tony Zuko. Uh, And Batman then sort of levels with Dick and said, hey, my parents were killed too when I was a kid, and that's why I became a crime fighter. And Dick says, well, I want to be a crime fighter too then. Please, you know, take me with you. Uh, Batman reluctantly says yes, uh, but... But then, then we begin a montage. First begins the candlelight oath that, that we know Batman took as a young child as well. And then we've got training. We've got, you know, trapeze work, which, of course, Dick is already great at. Uh, we've got boxing, teaching him how to throw a punch. We've got some jujitsu and all that kind of stuff. And then you get a costume. Pixie boots, short little short shorts, very incredibly short, way too short uh, I, I, for this day and age. And red vest over a green sort of shirt, yellow cape domino mask classic robin look uh we then cut to many months later after the training has finished and they're about to set their plan in motion uh dick disguises himself as a newspaper boy uh and begins selling papers he is shaken down by some thugs who work for tony zuko and he says that he'll pay and uh so they he has to pay them the next night and the next night, he does. And then he follows the gangsters to their hideout, which is a house. And inside the house is Boss Zuko. And he does talk like a uh, stereotypical gangster. He's like, yeah, see? Yeah, I'm going to milk him dry, see? With that sort of sort of intonation. Uh, Robin tells Batman what's up. And uh, the next night, Batman basically goes to every place that is being shaken down by Zuko's gangsters and just kind of pummels them, knocks their heads together, and says things like, hollow, just as I thought, like their heads are empty because they're dumb. He, you know, he goes to a gambling house run by Tony Zuko and throws roulette tables at the gangsters that are there, beats them all up, money goes everywhere, everyone's like, oh, nice money, and everyone grabs all the money. And Zuko... Uh, is is yelling, you know, an hour after all this has occurred at his men, and they receive a package, and the package inside has a live bat, which, uh, and they're like, it must be from the Batman. Well, of course it's from the Batman. It's a live bat. Good job. Circle gets to square. You did it. Uh, there's a note inside that says, get out of town, Zuko. I know you are also trying to get protection money from the company that is building 
up the Canaan building. Stay away. I'm protecting the building from your protection mob. And then it has, of course, the classic signature of just the symbol of a bat. So this, of course, leads Zuko and his men to be like, fine, we're going to go blow up the Canaan building. Robin gets on the back of the car and, and rides it to the Canaan building with them. Uh, then, as the uh, Zuko and his mob ride the elevator to the top, uh, Robin gets in place uh, to ambush them, and he pulls out a slingshot. But, of course, the comic can't just be like, it's a slingshot. He has to be, he has to say things like, uh, Robin takes a stone from his belt and places it in a queer-looking instrument. The slingshot. It's like, dude, the slingshot has been around since biblical times you know it's it's he even makes a reference to david and goliath like it's not a it's not a queer looking instrument it's a leather strap that has a pocket in it that you can throw rocks with so robin takes on all these goons and i will say they are on a like bare i-beam structure of a skyscraper so he's like pushing them off beams and and, and like jujitsu throwing them off beams he's doing a lot of murders for a i don't know 10 year old nine year old they never say how old he is, but he's young. He's doing a lot of murders for such a young age. Uh, Robin slips and is is hanging on by just his hands to an I-beam. And Zuko's about to shoot him, but Batman swings in on a chain and, and kicks Zuko over, stopping him from doing that. He then sort of knocks Zuko out or, or beats him up and uh, basically hangs one of his guards by the neck to get a confession out of him, you know, like Batman does. And Batman's got the got the confession, the swine the signed confession from this uh, goon. And Zuko gets up from his pummeling and says, you know, wow, you dirty rat and goes and rushes and pushes his goon off of the building. Uh but and you think, "Oh no, that's the confession. They needed that for court because I mean, a signed confession is is all well and good, but if he doesn't say it in court, that's nothing." But Don't worry, everyone. Batman had a plan. Robin had a camera set up and got a a picture taken of Zuko pushing his goon off of the Canaan building. So he's got him for murdered, like dead to rights. And and so that we see days later that a a newspaper boy saying, extra, extra, Zuko guilty of murder, governor to clean up city politics, extra. So this unnamed town is now getting cleaned up, and that's good. Because this is specifically not Gotham. Uh, even though Gotham doesn't exist yet. It's specifically not the town that, that Batman operates in. Uh, and and Batman, and or not Batman actually, it's Bruce and Dick are talking and says, Well Dick, now that your parents' deaths have been avenged, are you going to back to the circus life? And Dick says, No, I think mother and dad, not mother and father, hmm, would like me to go on fighting crime. And for me, well, I love adventure. He does. He loves almost dying. He's got a death wish. And, you know, then it cuts uh, It cuts to the end and says, you know, thrills, thrills, and more thrills is, is what the amazing character, the Batman, and the sensational find of 1940, Robin, the boy wonder, of the comic strips give you in every issue. With their astounding exploits, watch for next month's thrilling episode. Uh, so yeah, so that's that is Robin's debut issue. Uh, I think it's pretty good. It does wrap up his sort of reason for being a crime fighter pretty quickly in one issue. Unlike Batman's, who in some in some occurrences, some 
continuities never finds the murderer of his parents, which is the way I prefer it. Uh, but yeah, I think it's I think it's a good I think it establishes that Robin is more carefree and and laughing, whereas Batman can be sort of dour and dark and sinister, as much as these goofy early golden age Batmans can be sinister. Uh, but yeah, so that's that's the Batman story from Detective Comics number thirty eight. Uh, so now let's move on to the Crimson Avenger. This issue's story of the Crimson Avenger was written and drawn by Jack Letty. This is his first time on the title, and I will say it's just a real improvement, uh, art-wise at least. Story-wise, it's fine. It's it's another pulp story, but the the like the lines are so much cleaner and the designs are so much cleaner. Uh, the Crimson Avenger has gotten a, a, a kind of a costume change a little bit. He's marrying like a instead of just a f- like a long cape sort of cloak. He's wearing more of a Victorian style cloak with the, I guess what I would call like a shoulder skirt and then the long cloak part underneath. I I don't know what to call it, but it certainly looks really good. Uh, the, the, the comic and the art in total. Uh, so this Crimson Avenger story starts with a, uh, uh, the hoi polloi of, of the town having a fancy dinner party uh, or a fancy gala at Mr. and Mrs. Dupree's house. And suddenly, a gang of robbers come in and steal the jewels. Uh, their jewels, the Dupree's jewels, not just the jewels in general. Uh, and they get away. And the police come and talk to the Dupree's, and they say that they're insured, luckily, for their full value, so like $500,000, which in that time was a lot of money, and it still is a lot of money. So, we then cut to uh, the Globe Leader, which is uh, published by Lee Travis, the Crimson Avenger. He's talking to one of his ace reporters, Mac, and Mac clues him in on one of the bandits having a limp. And Lee Travis, being just the knowledgeable newspaper man, knows that that has to be Gimpy Stallone. Gimpy Malone, not Stallone. Gimpy Malone, or Maloney. One of Joe Scalpone's mob. So they want to get some more information about that before they go to print, because you know you can't be printing uncorroborated facts. But the, it also just gives Lee Travis time to uh, don his disguise as the Crimson Avenger and go after the Scalpone gang. So he gets wing and gets the car and goes out to uh, his country or to Scalpone's country hideout, which is where they hide out when the city's too hot. It's too hot, not like temperature-wise, but like crime, police, heat. Uh, So the Crimson Avenger finds him there at the country hideout. And he overhears uh, the Scalpone gang talking about the the heist that they just pulled off. And they're talking about how the Dupree's paid them five grand to rob the jewels. uh, And then they're going to collect the insurance money. They think, why don't we just steal the jewels? But Joe Scalpone, he's like, well, you dummies, these are fake jewels. They have the real jewels still at their house. So they get the insurance money, and they get to keep the jewelry, but $5,000 is still a lot of money. So so the Crimson, overhearing this, uh, decides to capture them all, and he does. He fights them. Uh, he does a lot of fighting. He does like a more, I will say, more Batman style of fight in this one. Typically, he's just... Uh, he's just like gas gunning people, and, and it's very low action. But this one, a lot of action. I think that lends itself to Letty's style of, of drawing and writing. 
And he captures them all, gasses them all, and puts them in the back of the trunk. He then goes to the Dupree's mansion and uh, finds a safe in the library and gets the real jewels out of there uh, and takes the men and the jewels to the police headquarters, drops them off, and the next morning the police call Mr. Dupree and say, we have your jewels, we've got the guys who got them. And, of course, just like in all comics, when someone's, like, trying to trick somebody, they always say, accidentally say, like, that, that can't be, because he's like, what's that? You say you've got the jewels? Why, that's impossible. I mean, good work. I, I'll be right over. You know, like, he, so we know that he's, like, a bad guy. Uh, once he gets there, he's like, thanks, that'll save the insurance company a lot of money. Uh, and the police off, the police chief is it, it says, uh, no, it won't, because these are the real jewels. And I also have a warrant for your arrest, and you arrest him for conspiracy to commit fraud. Uh, so, and then at the end, he has a little blurb, the, the police chief's talking to himself about how the Crimson Avenger should be in jail himself for all the laws he's broken, but he just doesn't seem to care about any law as long as it, as long as he gets the criminal that he's after. And he says, you have to admire a guy like that. It's like, no, you don't, but he's a, he's a vigilante. So we will admire him because he's doing good work. Uh, as long as he doesn't murder people, then it's like, woof, you know? Uh, but that's the Crimson Avenger story. St- short, sweet, six pages. Uh, this is slowly becoming Batman's title, and uh, other stories are getting short shrifted, but that's, I think, for the better. But alrighty, we'll now move on to Adventure Comics number 49. The first story we'll be covering in Adventure Comics number 49 is Our Man, who debuted last issue and was written by Gardner F. Fox and drawn, and probably written as well, by Bernard Bailey. Uh, Our Man, of course, is Rex TikTok Tyler, and for whatever reason, the writers are like, you know what's a good thing to call him all the time? TikTok. Just calling him TikTok, not calling him Rex. Barely calling him Our Man, just constantly calling him TikTok, and it gets on my last nerve. But uh, we start out with uh, the young Miss Drew, whose father is a doctor of some kind, a scientist, has come to to Rex, Tyler, for help. Uh, For some reason, a detective comes in after that and says, what did Miss Drew want with you? Which is none of your business, dude. Tyler says, she just wanted my help. And the detective says, Tyler, say, don't, you don't happen to be TikTok Tower, the, Tyler, the hour man. It's like, why, again, why would you make an ad, like, saying your full name, uh, who you are. <sighs> but I digress. Uh, the guy points out that Tyler's a little coward, weak boy, and he could never be our man. And and Tyler says, yeah, I guess you're right. But guess what, everyone? He is the hour man. And he, he mixes up a pill, and he puts on his hour man costume, but then he puts his regular clothes back on top, and then he goes searching for where uh, Dr. Drew went missing at his house. And he finds cold pills. It's a sign. Dr. Drew was here. But Tyler gets captured by a guard. As the, and as the guard's about to uh, tie him up, Rex takes the miracle, miracle pill and is so, it becomes super strong and fast and brave. Becomes our man. 
uh, he finds out from the guard that the secret hideout of the kidnappers is up in the mountains, and the only way to get there is with a uh, auto gyro, which is a helicopter for anyone who doesn't know what auto gyro means. Uh, the guard attempts to shoot our man, uh, who they again just refer to as TikTok, and it makes me so mad. Uh, he jumps over the bullet and beats up the guard, and then he uses a tree. He bends a tree over and uh, releases it to like fling him like a catapult or a trebuchet. And flings himself up onto a cliff. And he climbs up. But what's this up there? It's a bear. And he fights a bear. And he, he lifts the bear over his head and throws him off the cliff, killing the bear. That bear did nothing to you, our man. That's pretty uncool. He then, in the distance, sees the hideout and runs towards it. Uh... We then cut to inside the hideout, and uh, the the kidnappers are saying to Dr. Drew, make the formula. The formula for what? We don't know. Uh, and we'll, we'll never know. The Dr. Drew says that he doesn't know it and that he's ill. Well, of course he's ill. He dropped his cold pills. It's not going to get any better if he doesn't take his cold pills. Dr. Drew faints. Uh, we hear the auto gyro landing. Uh, outside, our man has made it to the hideout and sees the people emerging from the auto gyro. Now they refer to it as a plane, which is like just like it's. It was one page ago. It's not that hard to keep it straight. Uh, they have kidnapped Miss Drew, Doctor Drew's daughter, and at first, our man seems to be you know getting the upper hand on these guards. He's fighting them. He's knocking their heads together in classic comic book style. But then, uh, one of the uh, Kidnappers shoots him with some sort of secret ray gun. Where do you get the secret ray gun? No one knows. If he knows how to make a ray gun, how does he not know how to figure out the formula? I don't know. It seems like there's a lot of holes in this story. Uh, and the ray gun blinds our man, and he can't fight without his sight. He's he's very dependent on seeing. Uh, they then tie Miss Drew and our man up uh, to a pole together. And, of course... Our man asks Miss Drew how much time is left because that matters. Uh, she tells him 20 minutes to 4 because he's only got an hour. He's only got 20 minutes now because he took it at 3 apparently. And so he, he which he could have done all along, he busts out of the ropes because his sight has returned. And he beats up the kidnappers. And But the boss is going to escape. He gets into the auto gyro, which is now, as I see in the picture, a helicopter. Uh... And he pulls the plane down and throws it into a house, destroying it. But then he says, my strength is leaving me. I've got to get back to the laboratory. The hour is almost up. Which is, you know, if there's one thing I love about Our Man comics is how he's constantly telling me how much time he has left. Uh, then uh, a few minutes later, Dr. Drew wakes up and, and Miss Drew is there as well and says... Uh, the, Dr. Drew says, why, what in the world happened to that brave man? And then Miss Drew says, I don't know. It seems to me as if he was almost afraid of us because he was losing his powers. And that's the Hour Man story. Six pages, just neat and tidy there. Uh, wraps it up quite fast. A lot of holes in it, obviously, because what's the formula? Where did the ray gun come from? Who are these crooks? Who's Dr. Drew? Who's Miss Drew? We'll never know. We'll never know. But uh, let's move on to... Hopefully a story that's more coherent. Sandman. This story of Sandman was written by Gardner F. Fox and drawn by Craig... 
Krieg, C-R-E-I-G, Flessel. Uh, I'm sure it's just Craig, but it is not spelled how I would spell Craig, so that's where my confusion comes from. Uh, we find Wesley Dodds, the Sandman, as we all know, uh, doing his part by giving uh, some money to a guy asking for money on the street. Uh, and as he's doing so, he sees a man stumble into the street and fall and get hit by a car. It's like, wow. And the car apparently just drives away. But that's not the important part. The important part is as Wesley is tending to the man who has fallen and stumbled and onto the street and got hit by a car, is that the um, the person who was panhandling, uh, who was had crutches and presumably couldn't walk, starts running away after a police officer does declare that the man who fell in front of the car is dead uh wesley runs just just sprints down the street to catch up with the the panhandler and uh sees him go into an apartment building later that day uh wesley is uh reading the newspaper uh, and notices that an assistant to Dr. Lovejoy, who we've never met before, was killed by a car this afternoon at Corn Street, which is interesting because that's that's where Wesley was. That was the guy who was killed. Uh, and apparently, as we're learning, it's the second assistant of Dr. Lovejoy's that's died within the week, which is, wow, what a, what a mortality rate in that profession. Uh, Wesley decides that that's more than a coincidence, so he is going to investigate. He dons his his Sandman outfit, which every time I see it, I just think, wow, so many colors. The hat and the gloves are like an orange or a brown. The gas mask is yellow. The The cloak is like a dark purple or a, 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 like a Merlot, like a red wine color. Suit's green. His shirt is blue. He's just all over the place uh, when it comes to colors. He hops in the Sandmobile and drives to Lovejoy's house. Uh, how he knows where Lovejoy lives? Don't ask any questions. Please stop asking questions. This isn't the time. Dr. Lovejoy's in danger. Sandman does a little B&E, as he is wont to do, and finds two gunmen in Dr. Lovejoy's house already. They are going to go up and they're going to, uh, quote-unquote, bump him off, as they say in old-timey parlance. Uh, before they can do that, Sandman knocks one of them out with the gas gun, finds another one rifling through a desk, and hits him with the sand gun, or the sleeping gun as well, wakes up Dr. Lovejoy. Dr. Lovejoy reveals that he's been receiving death threats unless he reveals his secret of curing the common cold. Which, wow, it's a great, it's a big industry. Think about it, think of all the products that, that fight the common cold. It's a lot of money involved. Uh, Dr. Lovejoy explains that he, you know, can cure the common cold. Sandman uh, says he'll get rid of these men so that the police won't ask any questions. He sprinkles sand after dumping the men at the city dump and then heads over to that apartment building that he saw the panhandler go into. He climbs the fire escape and then sneaks in through... Uh, a window. He finds the panhandler sleeping like a sweet little baby. Uh, and so he decides to look around his room. 
and he finds uh, a bell jar, which is, if you don't know, a big jar that looks like a bell. It's right there in the name. And inside is uh, a single black widow spider. And he also finds the cup that the panhandler was using to uh, ask for coins and such. And he notices a sort of like compartment or release button and out comes a very, very sharp needle. It's called deadly sharp needle. And it leaps from the cup, so it like kind of springs out. So with these clues in mind, Sandman sneaks out of the panhandler's house without waking him, because he's stealthy like that, and runs to the morgue to get uh, an autopsy done on Lovejoy's assistant, thinking he was murdered. Uh, Obviously, as as we know, as uh, fans of Sandman or this show uh, will know, Sandman is wanted by the police because he is a vigilante and he breaks laws in order to solve crime like he does. So, stepping foot into the police headquarters or the morgue or any place associated with the police is not uh, great, not going to end out well, and uh, that's exactly how it goes. Sandman walks in, there's two police officers, they say it's the Sandman, get him, he knocks him out with the gas gun, and then kind of breaks into the chief of police, or like the on-duty lieutenant, or sergeant, or captain, you know, police rankings and such, and says, let's call a truce so I can help you solve a double homicide. So the Sandman lays out all of his findings, the Black Widow spider, this coin with the needle, and surmises that when Dr. Lovejoy's assistant dropped a coin into the cup, the panhandler released the needle, stabbing the assistant and injecting him with Black Widow venom, which if you, you know, if you know anything about Black Widows is that their bite is uh, deadly. So it's not good. Uh, With that proof, the policeman in charge calls for an autopsy, and lo and behold, the the assistant was killed by Black Widow Venom. Uh, We then cut back to the panhandler's uh, apartment, where two men are trying to wake him up, saying, Hey, boss, wake up. They find sand uh, on his bed, meaning the Sandman's been there. And then there's a scene where the one of the henchmen or underlings, whatever you want to call them, is pouring a pitcher of water over their boss's head, but also giving orders to the other guy. It's a very weird scene. It's like, well, if you were my boss, I wouldn't want you to do that to me. But maybe it's just like, you got to wake up, you know? So they figure out that the Sandman has discovered the cup and the, the, the spider, And so they decide to leave town. They say, let's scram, as old-timey bad guys are wont to do. Uh, They are going to drive to Lovejoy's house and uh, take the secret formula or kidnap him. Uh, Those are the only two options. Uh, Sandman, somehow knowing that that his quarry has flown, uh, chases after them in in his Sandman mobile. Uh, We then cut to Dr. Lovejoy being awakened from his sleep once again. This man cannot catch a break. He's just trying to get his eight hours of good sleep. That's how he is smart enough to come up with the cure for the common cold, a thing that you cannot cure. 
So they, you know, they, they hustle him out of bed and they make him put on a robe and they say, we got a tuck. And they put him in a car and um, they presumably drive away because the Sandman arrives at uh, Dr. Lovejoy's house just as they're leaving. But he just says, I have a hunch I'm just a bit too late. Well, then what? What are you doing? Because he gets out of the car, goes into the house and was like, oh, gosh. They did get him. I was right. But he does notice a piece of paper and he realizes that it's a clue um, that had been dropped by one of the men who grabbed Dr. Lovejoy. And luckily, the Sandman knows a shortcut to this place, Hal's Health Camp. I don't know if it's a receipt. I don't know if it's a brochure that fell out of his pocket. He doesn't say. It just says Hal's Health Camp, which is really convenient. So the Sandman, using his shortcut, makes it to Hal's health camp before the uh, the robbers, or the robbers, the thugs, which is weird because, like, why wouldn't they also take that shortcut? Because his shortcut, all it shows is just him driving up a hill. It's like, okay, well, is he not using a road? I don't know. But because they left before him, he had to go into the house, find the note, and then get back in the Sandman mobile and then drive away. But the Sandman's good. He's just so good at driving really fast. So the Sandman has hidden up in the attic of this Hal's health camp, which is a health retreat of some kind. It's not explained. And looks down from the attic when the crooks come in with Dr. Lovejoy. He says his hunch was right, which is like, what if it had been wrong, dude? The boss of these thugs says, you know, tell me the secret or else. And Dr. Lovejoy, just being a brave man, says, nah, dude, I'm not going to tell you the secret to curing the common cold so they punch him in the face and then it's not explained but the boss then leaves dr lovejoy alone it's nowhere in any of the panels does it say like now i'm gonna leave you alone to stew but they do and so the sandman uh reaches down from his wide open hole in the roof of this room into the attic and pulls dr lovejoy up and, you know, kind of hides him away in the attic. And then the Sandman comes down into the room and, you know, it's like going to wait for them to come back in. Uh, we then cut to the crooks who are like, I'm going to go back in there and get the secret from that doctor. See if he's stewed long enough. We cut to the police who have found uh, the clues left by the Sandman at Dr. Lovejoy's house. They are going to uh, then head to Hell's health camp. Uh, which is where the Sandman is pointing them to. We then cut back to Sandman and the crooks, and, and they have come into the room, and the Sandman does his patented thing of shooting them with a gas gun, and then, if that doesn't work, uh, punching them, you know, saying, oh, you want to play rough, eh? And then they play rough, which is the Sandman beating them up. He says uh, the classic line of two against one, that suits me swell, you know? And he beats them all up. They say, spare me. They they call for mercy like all crooks do. Uh, the Sandman isn't going to give him mercy. But the police come in and say, hold it, Sandman. You know, no need to give this man brain damage. And uh, the Sandman says, uh, Dr. Lovejoy's upstairs. My work here is done. The doctor thanks Sandman, saying, hey you know what, here's the secret to curing the common cold, you can have it. And Sandman's like, oh, thanks, you know, uh, I had fun, 
solving the murderers and, and rescuing you and stuff. It's, it's, it's what I do for fun. It's my only hobby, other than being a world-class inventor, which I guess is his job, not his hobby. Uh, we then see, we then cut to, however, either the next day or several days later, somehow the, uh, Wesley has gotten a cold. He mixes up the, uh, uh, the pill that Dr. Lovejoy says will cure the common cold. And then a half hour later, actually less than half an hour later, he says, hey, my cold's all gone. And he, he, you know, clicks his heels together and jumps for joy. And then he says, and to think that fake cripple, he says cripple, wanted to keep a boon like that from mankind, mankind until he got a lot of dough. And that's the end. Uh, which, like, yeah, that's what, that's what crooks do. They kind of, they're like, I'm going to steal a thing and then ransom it. It's it's kind of how how it works, how the trade works, but uh, that's Sandman uh, from issue number forty nine, and I will say, I was right. It's a much more coherent story than the Hour Man story, although we've never heard of Doctor Lovejoy before. He, it's explained what he's developed that makes him a target for criminals, and uh, unlike the Hour Man story, where it's like just give us the formula, the formula for what? No one knows, and no one will know because it's not explained. But, but uh, overall, I guess Sandman has had a lot more time than Our Man. This is only Our Man's second story. Uh, you know, it's, Sandman's had a lot more time to develop his sort of routine and, and, and stuff like this. Even though they're both written by Gardner Fox. So you'd think he'd be able to really just kind of take Sandman stories and turn them into Our Man stories. But I don't know how the writing process worked. Maybe there were restrictions on what Our Man could do. And he has a lot fewer pages to work with than Sandman does because he is so new. Uh, but yeah, that's at, that's Adventure Comics number 49. Uh, so now let's move on to Flash Comics number 5. Flash Comics number 5 was released March 14th, 1940 with a cover date of May 1940. No debuts in this issue, uh, but we will be covering The Flash Hawkman, and Johnny Thunder to a lesser extent. I'll explain that when we get to Johnny Thunder. But first, let's start with The Flash. Uh, we find The Flash running along a beach. He says, I think I'll get there just in time. And he grabs this man who is painting on the beach. Oh, that's nice, having a nice relaxing afternoon painting on the beach until The Flash, Jay Garrick, ruins it. He says to the painter that he can't explain just yet. Uh, but then after running a f little bit further down the beach behind some dunes, he does explain um, what is happening. He points out two men in suits carrying Tommy guns. And uh, he explains to this old man who is named Baloo uh, that they were coming to kill him. For someone called the Vandal, because this artist, Baloo, his painting, Night Moon, has just won the Night Award, which is a fake award that I'm pretty sure doesn't exist, uh, for best painting of the year. Art is subjective, kind of hard to pick that. Uh, that makes Baloo a famous man, and it, we find out that this Vandal, who I'm going to believe is Vandal Savage, even though I don't think he gets introduced into way later in DC Comics continuity, but I'm going to believe because he lives forever. So he could still be, it could be the Vandal. 
Vandal Savage, that he owns all of Baloo's paintings. And after finding out that he's won this award, he wants to kill Baloo because, as we all know, once a painter is dead, their art is much more valuable because uh, society doesn't know how to value art until it's a limited commodity. So we then get a sort of interesting storytelling trope that we haven't really seen in a lot of these early comics, and that's a flashback sequence. So we flash back to uh, Jay Garrick being Jay Garrick in a museum, uh, and he overhears these two men, these same two men that were going to kill Baloo, talking about one of Baloo's murals that is in this museum. And they say, oh, he just won the Knight Award for uh, for his painting. And the other one says, oh, yeah, looks like the Vandal might have a job for us. Let's go. So the Flash follows them to this large city mansion uh, because back in the day in in New York City, where I presume this is, if I remember correctly, or vague big city, millionaires used to have mansions in the city rather than in the suburbs that like they have now. This is before high-rises and all those sorts of things. The Flash sneaks past these two men, uh, as they're entering this mansion and takes a look around and sees all of these incredible works of art, uh, you know, more than you could see in, in the best art museum. There's just art everywhere. And he finds himself in this room. And he can hear the two men uh, coming down the hallway into this room. Uh, so the Flash decides to make himself invisible. Baloo interrupts the flashback, you know, Well, actually, no. Baloo doesn't interrupt. The Flash just interrupts his own flashback to explain to Baloo and the reader how he can be invisible uh, by moving back and forth so fast that his molecules or whatever can't be seen by the human eye. Uh, He does it a lot. It's always symbolized by sort of whooshing lines or circles to indicate that he's moving back and forth. So, back to the flashback, uh, this cloaked man appears in this window, don't know why he can't just appear in the room like a normal person, but he says basically, go and kill Baloo, who just won the Knight Award, uh, because I own, you know, so it's, I own his paintings, so they'll be more valuable, exactly what the Flash said earlier. Uh, so, the Flash ran out of the mansion to go find Baloo, and that brings us back to the present. The Flash is going to put Baloo on a train back to the city, the vague city. We're going to go with New York. Uh, Oh, wait, sorry. It is New York, because the Flash says, go to my house in New York. So, yes, New York. Uh, There is a sort of funny sequence that I do want to point out. It's not important to the story, but I think it's kind of funny. Uh, It's one of those instances where the Flash is running so fast that normal people react in just, like, the most buckwild ways. So the engineer of the train looks out of his window and sees the Flash carrying Blue on his back. And the Flash says, see you at Junctionville, which must be the next stop, presumably. And the engineer says, if he's at Junctionville ahead of me, I'll eat my hat. I must be going daffy. Overwork, I guess, which is probably true. Train engineers at the time were probably very overworked. 
Uh, so the we see then Flash and Blue waiting at the train station uh, for this train, and the engineer says it's him with exclamation points. And then as the Flash is running away to go deal with Vandal and his goons, and Blue's going to get on the train, he uh, kind of passes by the engineer, and we see the engineer eating his hat, like physically eating his hat. No one heard him say that. He didn't have to actually eat his hat. It, it specifically says the engineer pays his bet with himself and eats his hat. That's going to cause digestive distress. I'll tell you that. Uh, so we then go back to the Vandal, uh, and he has another collection of goons uh, setting up another plot. He's a very busy bee uh, in his one and only appearance. He wants them to go cause a disturbance so that he can steal this very famous de Lacy statue that's been brought over from Europe because of the war, which is a reference to World War II, which is going on at this time, as you well know. So the Flash is going to follow these goons to the museum. They're just walking around for a long time, and then they all start fighting each other, like having like a real fight. It says fiercely. They're fighting fiercely. The Flash figures out that this must be some sort of distraction or ruse, and he searches the entire museum until he finds a pedestal um, that is supposed to be housing uh, the DeLacy statue known as Peasant. Uh, so the Flash searches towards the uh, like loading dock area of the museum and finds the DeLacy statue hidden in one of uh, the trucks. He then takes the statue and goes to a uh, sculpting school or an art school and finds a sculpting class and takes clay and kind of uh, sculpts a simulacrum, we'll say. It's not even close to as detailed and good. That would be that would be unfair if the Flash can move at super speeds and also is a world-class artist. He's moving so fast as usual that he can't be seen, so all the artists, all the sculptor students think that it's a ghost. The ghost of Michelangelo, specifically, who is uh, sculpting this statue. The Flash then takes the copy and puts it back where the original was hidden in the truck. And then uh, waits for it to be delivered to the Vandal. And while he's waiting, he goes to his house and meets Baloo as he's just arrived at the Flash's house, at Jay Garrick's house. And he says, wait here, you know, uh, and keep this statue safe. And and then and then the flash is off. He then arrives back at the Vandal's house, and he makes a comment about how he's waiting so long. They're taking such a long time to get there. He said, I had time to go home and speak with Baloo, and now I'm still just, like, hanging out. Everyone else is too slow. It's like, yeah, Flash, duh, you're the Flash. The Flash then uh, kind of plays some practical jokes on the henchman and the Vandal because you know him. He's such a trickster. So he moves so fast that he's invisible and he keeps like making these little wisecracks at everybody, uh, you know, telling telling the guys not to drop the statue. Don't crack the statue, boys. And all this kind of stuff. And the henchmen deliver the statue, which is the copy, to Vandal and the Vandal He's an art connoisseur, of course. He knows that this is a fake. This is a fake DeLacy. This isn't a real one. And uh, while he is distracted by this, the Flash uh, 
steals all of his art uh, from his house, which, like, I understand the Vandal just had a statue stolen, so it's it's probably a pretty good presumption to uh, think that the rest of his art pieces are also stolen. But what if they're not? What if some are legitimately purchased? Because, think about it. The Vandal wants the most valuable art collection in the world. You can't have an, a valuable art collection if the works are stolen. You can't let anyone know that you have them. So, by that logic, the Flash is stealing. The Flash is doing theft. Doing, I mean, grand larceny, basically. Like, this is, because depending on the, depending on the value of the stolen art, object it can be a felony instead of just a misdemeanor um like petty theft so he might be possibly stealing from a a villain uh, to be you know to be said but still these could have been legitimately purchased artworks that the flash is stealing he takes them to the museum the art museum and drops them off and lets a guard know that there's been a bunch of art stuff dropped outside um for donation, I guess, and then runs back to the Vandal, kind of confronts him, saying, you sent men to to kill Baloo and to make your pictures more valuable, and you engineered the DeLacy theft, and just to satisfy your, your greed, your greedy ambition to own the most valuable art collection in the world. And the Vandal reveals, yes, he did all that, because he, that's why he took the name Vandal, because the Vandals were a, uh, a group or race of people in ancient Europe uh, that destroyed most things. They were considered in Roman purview barbarians, uh, uncivilized barbarians that all they caused is destruction. And that's why he wanted his collection to be worth more than the art that the Vandals destroyed. Which, okay, sure, not sure why that means you have to do it criminally, but okay. Uh, then the Flash um, oh, overhears, and all of this, he he does this weird thing where he, you know, after he confronts the Vandal, the Vandal kind of calls in some other people because the Flash just leaves, I guess. And the Vandal calls in one of his henchmen and says, round up all the other boys because I got something, you know, planned, uh, it doesn't really make any sense. It's like, Flash, you've got him. He's confessed. You know, he wants to get all the gang, but it's, they're just henchmen, Flash. They're not important. Um, so they call over all of the boys. The Flash steals all their guns with super speed and then ties up all of the henchmen and then gets the Vandal to... Uh, say that he'll confess, even though the Flash has already heard him confess. But uh, I digress. Uh, and then we see a uh, final panel with Baloo and the Flash, and it's a weird conversation because Baloo says all in one sort of word bubble. He says, how can I ever thank you, question mark, dot, dot, dot. Well, I must get back and finish my seascape, dot, dot, dot. What are you going to do? And the Flash says, I know, exclamation point, I know to what? I don't know, that he can, that how can I ever thank you? I know, okay. Uh, you hang on, and I'll run you back up there to his, you know, to the beach to, so he can finish his seascape. 
And then the Flash says, after this unexciting day, I'm sadly in need of some exercise. Ha, 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 ha. Because he didn't have to work very hard. But there's really no way to read this conversation to make it make any sense. So we'll go bit by bit. How can I ever thank you, says Baloo. I know, the Flash says the Flash. Well, I must get back and finish my seascape, says Baloo. Hang on. Or you hang on. And I'll run you back up there. What are you going to do, says Baloo. After this unexciting day, I'm sadly in need of some exercise. The end makes some sort of sense, but the beginning doesn't make any sense at all. It's a very confusing dialogue. But that is the end of the Flash story in uh, Flash Comics number five. It was fine. I I thought that they they were definitely just filling up panels at certain points. Like, why have the Vandal reveal his sort of, like, motives and confess and then completely stop any of the action and have them bring all the boys why not put that section where he confesses at the end you could just do that like right after the, it's a perfect there's a perfect part in this the vandal tries to escape when the flash is rounding up all the boys and the flash grabs him you could have just put it right after put the section where he says i was the vandal and all that kind of stuff that's why i named myself the vandal right after this he'll confess just feels weird uh feels like weird pacing but other than that fine standard the flash still doesn't have any rogues or anything he doesn't have the ultra humanite um or anything like superman so he just has to deal with regular people and so he he trounces them very easily Uh, so that's unfortunate but we're just not there yet so let's move on to uh hawkman This Hawkman story was written by Gardner F. Fox and drawn by Sheldon Moldoff. And it starts off with a newspaper headline that says, Attempt to assassinate president. Attacker is caught at 3 p.m. yesterday, comma, an attack by a fanatical Easterner on the president was, and then it cuts off. We see Carter Hall, Hawkman, reading this. And he says to himself, or thinks to himself, Strange, this attack. One was made last month on the King of Emporia, and before that, an attack on the Premier of Frappe. You know, the good countries Emporia and Frappe. And it is spelled like like what you would get at uh, Starbucks. Frappe, F-R-A-P-P-E. Let's just say that the DC Universe hasn't figured out its list of fake countries, and let's just say Emporia and Frappe are not going to make the cut. But, uh, you know, he puts this out of his mind. He's like, well, that's weird, but whatever. And he goes to the opera at, at the Metropolitan Opera House. And during an intermission, he's getting some air, smoking a pipe. And then he does a little bit of racial profiling. He sees uh, an Arabic man wearing a, a turban, it looks like. And he said he thinks to himself, some same sort of fellow that tried to kill the president. Maybe he's after somebody. Hey, Carter, that's not cool. Just because, like, a guy who happens to be the same skin color as the guy who attacked the president? Like, come on. This is what happened after 9-11. You racist. Uh, but luckily for him, his racist profiling was correct. And uh, the, the man in the turban 
pulls out a, a long dagger and yells, Allah e Allah, die, and attempts to stab some random blonde girl uh, who we've never met before. Uh, Carter Hall steps in, punches him, knocks him out, then identifies the dagger just for fun, says, ah, this is a conjurer. Don't know if that's a real name of a weapon. Uh, let's find out just real quickly. Conjure, 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 weapon. Um, let's see. It looks like, yes, it is. It is. Conjure is a traditional dagger originating from Oman, although it has since spread to the rest of the Middle East. Okay. All right. It's like a curved dagger. Kind of stereotypically what you'd see a, a person of uh, Arabic descent in uh, media using. All right. All right. Uh, put one in the correct column for Hawkman, this, this issue. He then talks to the blonde woman. Uh, she, in, well, no, she doesn't introduce herself. Sorry. Um, she's interested in why he knows that the dagger is called a conjure, um, or conjure. I don't know how it's pronounced. Uh, he says, uh, uh, don't worry about that. Let's make sure that this guy gets uh, to the police. And uh, they call the police, and when Hawkman turns around after talking to the police, or Carter Hall, sorry, he's not Hawkman at this moment, this blonde woman is gone. What? Weird. Uh, later, he finds uh, in his jacket pocket a business card. Uh, it's, it's basically a booty call. It says, Ione Craig, so I-O-N-E, uh, Craig. Plaza Manor, why not call tonight, question mark. It's like, all right, uh, Carter, you are a married man or in a relationship with Shaira. Come on, dude. Uh, don't need to be gallivanting all over town. Uh, so that night he, he, he calls on her at the Plaza Manor, and when she opens the door, he says, I came to see you! It's an exclamation point. And she says, yes, I'm glad. I didn't want you to get further mixed up in this terrible affair. See, I don't believe you. I don't believe her, because then why slip the card into his pocket and bring him to the Plaza Manor where you're staying? You're clearly wrapped up in something. He would have just gone home, been like, huh, that's weird. I wonder where that blonde lady went. And then just went about his day and life. But I digress. Uh, she is going to... Araby tonight. Get it? Araby? A-R-A-B-Y? It's a country full of Arabic people? We're really clever here at DC Comics in 1940. We're very, very clever. So, uh, she tells him that a warning to not to interfere in the affairs of others will be left on his pillow tonight. How she knows that, it's not explained. Uh, and we never see it happen, but whatever. Uh, Carter says that he's not frightened, uh, and she asks him if he's ever heard of Hassan ibn Sada, and he says, oh, yeah, of course, I'm a historian. I, of course, know everything about history. He says uh, he founded the Sect of Assassins about the year 1070, and his followers slew many high-ranking men in Persia, which is now modern-day uh, Iran, I believe. She says that they've been revived, and uh, they plan to they plan a worldwide murder plot to kill those in authority in all countries and set up their own leaders. Okay. Uh, 
which would explain the attacks on the president, the king, and the premier of, of America, Emporia, and Frappe, respectively. Uh, and, of course, Carter should have known that it was the sect of assassins, a very old and defunct uh, organization, because the Kanjur is their murder weapon, and nobody else is allowed to use it. Uh, that part, that no one else is allowed to use it, that was me uh, editorializing. He doesn't say that. She then reveals that she's a Secret Service agent of the government, presumably the United States. Uh, and tonight she received her orders to go to Araby. Uh, a country in the Middle East with a bunch of Arab people in it. Uh, so Carter then asks himself the question, if they, being the sect of assassins, know that Ione Craig is a secret agent, because why else would they try to kill her, why is the government sending her to Araby? Uh, you know, it, it'll make it really easy for the assassins to kill her. And uh, Carter, not thinking that Ione Craig, being a woman, is not able to handle herself, thinks she needs a bodyguard. So he dons his Hawkman uniform, costume, equipment, whatever you want to call it. And this is the part that makes me mad about this story in particular. The only weapon he brings is a sling and stones. Now, a sling, if we, if we remember from earlier in the episode, is the weapon that robin often uses and he's a boy uh hawkman you have access to every ancient weapon in history that's your whole shtick you know fighting the crimes of the present with the weapons of the past bring something better you know a bow and arrow a, a javelin something a big sword i don't know it's just stupid and later on i'll ask this question again if he had a better weapon things would go differently so he off he flies. He follows the ship that Ione Craig is uh, sailing on because this is 1940, and you know commercial air travel is not widespread, uh, or I think possibly not even existent. I'm not I'm not well versed in the history of commercial air travel, so uh, but I don't think it was widely available. Uh, and he you know he flies around and he kind of he hangs out on the smokestacks and he ties himself to the back and kind of glides along. He's having fun in this, you know, a multiple day journey uh, across the ocean. Uh, Ione Craig is lounging in her uh, hotel room after she arrives in Cairo, just kind of complaining about how long it took her to get here, um, saying she wishes that she had someone to turn to and who should come into her window like a real creep? Hawkman. He explains that uh, he is her bodyguard, self-appointed, I might add. Um, and he wants to know if there's anything he can do to help her fight against the assassins. And she says, of course, why don't you just do my whole job for me? Here's a map of the district of what place? I don't know. Uh, where the city of assassins is located. Make sure To make sure of the city's locations, I need someone to find it for me, even though that was my job. Hawkman says that he'll find it, and then she says that she'll prepare for an air raid. Uh, so, uh, Hawkman flies off. There's a scene, for some reason, of Hawkman bathing in a desert lake. Uh, this, I will say, this uh, this story of Hawkman showing a lot of skin. You know, obviously Hawkman doesn't ever wear a shirt, but we see him bathing in just his red, you know, underoos. 
and later on we'll see some stuff. Uh, but he's flying across the desert, and the book or the story makes it very obvious. It's like, yeah, Hawkman can fly, so like going across this desert isn't a big deal. It's like we get it. He's got huge wings. We know he can fly. Um, it then makes another point once he gets, once he finds the hidden city of Alamut, but like she had a map to it, so it's not very hidden now, is it? Uh, Hawkman flies over the wall. He's like, oh, these guards aren't a problem for me because I can fly over the wall. Yeah, we get it. Your one thing is that you can fly and you use old weapons, Hawkman. Give it a rest. He finds the palace and then we cut Back to Ione Craig, who, even though she said, I will plan an air raid, she's in the shop district because she's a woman in the 1940s, and the only thing that comics writers at the time know about women is that they like to shop. So she's in the shopping district instead of some sort of covert, you know, U.S. government secret spy cell or whatever, uh, planning an air raid. So she gets kidnapped by two members of the sect of assassins. We then cut back to inside the palace of Alumut, which is the city where the assassins live. And the, a man sitting on a throne says, fetch Abdul ben Hathor, uh, who must be his, uh, his like right-hand man. Uh, he does also say, quick, else I behead you, because, again, you know, comics writers at the time, the only thing they know about Arabic people is that they behead people? I guess uh, not a lot of not a lot of uh, room for gray areas in this story. Uh, uh, Abdul Ben Hathor uh, says that their efforts in America, in Emporia, and in Frappe are close to success. So two out of three are successful so far. The man on the throne then identifies himself as uh, Hassan ibn Sadat, not the original one, the descendant of the mighty ancestor of the same name. He makes it a point to say that. Uh, he says he'll then place his men on the throne in those countries, even though uh, that's not how America works. So I guess he'll get him elected uh, or just do like a military coup, take over the country. I don't know. Uh, it's not really well thought out because it doesn't really indicate if they have like armies or whatever but he says that he shall be the first ruler of all the world and he kind of wipes away a tear from his eye he has emotions and he has feelings he is a uh, a modern ruler uh hawkman has been watching this whole exchange so he knows what's going on uh and then he sees another sight uh a, a man brings in ione craig after having been kidnapped and uh Hassan ibn Sadah says, a golden girl to amuse me. Well done. She shall become one of my wives. We're just going to move right on past that. Uh, he can't take out uh, Hassan because Ioni's too close. If only he had something more accurate than a sling and rocks. Uh, if only. Uh, so instead of attacking Sadah, he attacks Abdul ben Hathor and apparently kills him because he says... Abdul ben Hathar becomes a thing of the past when the Hawksman's throw is good. What? He killed him with a rock from a sling? I mean, I understand it happened in the Bible, but also that's fake. That was a made-up story. Yeah, I mean, this is also a made-up story. So I guess I guess they're in the same vein. Uh, so uh, Hassan 
Ibn Sada seeing this uh, calls for archers. Like, hey, those are good weapons. If only Hawkman had one of those. And they shoot arrows at Hawkman, but he escapes out the window, leaving Ioni Craig to uh, Sada's mercy, uh, rather than kind of swooping down, punching Sada, and just kind of taking her. But whatever. So later that night, uh, Hawkman infiltrates the palace and comes upon a feast happening. Uh, and Ioni Craig is chained to one wall. And this is the point where I told you, like, it also gets a little bit uh, scandalous or risque, just like previously, like Hawkman bathing in that desert lake. Ioni Craig is, like, her dress is, like, half ripped, and it's showing a lot of skin for a 1940s thing. Because, I mean, this is the the um, the Hayes Code, uh, which is a thing in, in film at the time, kind of restricting... What can be shown in films and stuff is either right around the corner or has already come into effect. So, like, showing this, it's like, whoa, scandalous. Uh, Hassan gets scared. Hassan Ibn Sadah gets scared and uh, seeing Hawkman and, and says, kill him. Uh, Hawkman, being smart, grabs a big sword off the wall uh, and fights Hassan's men and uh, does away with them pretty pretty easily, breaks the chains of Ioni Craig, grabs her, and leaves. Uh, and b- b- before leaving, throws a stone from his sling at Hassan ibn Sada and kills him uh, dead and then flies off. I don't. We don't hear anything about any sort of airstrike or air raid. I mean, I guess since their leader's dead, they'll disband, but like that's not tr- like a proven fact. But I guess... I guess we just have to, you know, think all's well that ends well. Uh, then next we have Johnny Thunder or Johnny Thunderbolt, as it's titled in this uh, issue for whatever reason. Uh, it was written by John B. Wentworth and drawn by Stan Ashmeyer. Uh, as I said earlier, we're going to kind of just summarize Johnny Thunder because my thought process is that at this point in time, Johnny doesn't even understand that he like has the thunderbolt and he's not actively being a superhero he's just kind of i guess kind of goofing his way through these uh things and i think it'd be a better use of our time to to move past johnny uh, until he like actively becomes a superhero which i don't know if he ever does outside of being a member of the justice society um so i'll just summarize this issue and then and then that'll be it it'll save time and and uh, save me from having to read the stories. Uh, so Johnny uh, joins the FBI and becomes a G-man, as they're called, or a government man. And he needs to investigate the disappearance of a bank vault. Uh, the entire vault has disappeared, uh, including a man inside. And who would that man inside happen to be? You guessed it. Johnny's father, Simon Thunder. Uh, Johnny then becomes suspicious of a piano company across the street from the bank. He goes to investigate the building and is captured by crooks. Uh, the crooks have... Uh, he, he discovers that the crooks have tunneled under the street uh, across, across to the bank and and caused the bank vault to fall underground. And then they, perfect, I guess, perfectly recreated the floor so that no one was the wiser uh, so that the vault can't be seen from inside and then they could kind of remove the stuff at their leisure. Uh, 
Johnny accidentally uses his thunderbolt powers, as he always does, and is able to rescue his father and apprehend the crooks. See, like, that's just, he just, like, kind of, like, accidentally gets into that situation. And then doesn't, act, is not actively being a superhero. He's just a guy who happens to have a thing that grants his wishes. And I just don't think that that's useful uh, to anyone to have to have me summarize beat by beat. But we'll still get the gist of it because he is still technically a character in the DT DC Comics multiverse. So, but that is it for this episode of Issue by Issue. It feels good to be back in the saddle. It's almost like I never left. Um, not true. I've grown. I've grown and I've matured in the last six months. Uh, you know, six months ago I was 28. Now I'm 29 and I'm so mature now. Uh, but it feels good to get back in the saddle. And I feel like this this sort of compromise that I've made with shorter episodes, but, you know, starting a second sort of uh, timeline from Crisis will be uh, good for everybody. Uh, and that, that, that episode, which we'll, we'll explain how it's going to go in that episode will be coming out later this week from the time that this one is posted. Uh, but as usual, uh, hit us up at uh, on our Twitter and on Instagram. I'm going to get back to posting on the Instagram. Uh, you know, funny panels, maybe not as often as I was doing because that was also kind of bogging me down having to find one from every issue. Because some issues, you know what, they don't have good panels. They don't have primo panels, so I'm not going to post them. But some do, and I will post those. But I will post every cover and uh, other just fun updates that happen. And uh, and uh, we'll get back into it. I think it'll be a good time. Uh, so until next time, I'm your host, Nick Byers. This has been Issue by Issue. Uh, see you around. <laughs>